to me, life and death is all in God's hand. And as far as I'm concerned, it's only God will determine when you die, how you die. So what is there to be afraid of? I was once asked by somebody, are you afraid of death? I said, sir, you shouldn't be afraid of death too because your life is all there. It's written when you will die, how you will die. You will know how, but you will die one day. So what is there to be afraid of? I've jumped the skies, the night skies, the day skies, all over. I should have died. I could have died when one day my parachute didn't open. I landed in Buffalo hole somewhere in the paddy field. It was like five feet deep, right? And then you went straight yeah, again. I should have died. Well, God said you're not fated to die on that day. No, I am still alive. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 92 of the So This Is My Why podcast. I'm your host and producer, Lingya, and today's guest is General Tansri Datuk Borhan bin Ahmed, a retired four-star general and former Chief of Defence Forces, which is the highest military rank that one can attain. Standing at just above five feet, the general established the Malaysian Special Forces in the mid-1960s. He fought in the Congos, the Vietnam War, and Malaysia's undeclared war, and even swam from Singapore to Johor because the British said that Malaysians could never become commanders. As you can imagine, we have barely touched on what he has done and achieved in his life, and we unpack all that, including his military exploits, what it takes to be a great leader, and his greatest regret in life. So if you'd like to learn more about what it takes to be a commando and four-star general, then this is the episode for you. Are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. You were born in 12th of December, 1939, and you grew up as a Kampong boy in Malacca under the Japanese occupation. So what were your most memorable moments from your childhood? Oh my God, the most memorable moment. I was an orphan at the age of one. My father passed away, only my mother. And my mother slopped to death to feed the three children that she had. I used to accompany her wherever she goes, body planting and all this and so on. So the most memorable one was we had a coconut plantation. She wants me to climb the coconut trees and, and release uh, people take two up. They tie the suit there to release all those being tied. So I climbed, I think, over 30 trees when I was only about six years old. So that was quite a memorable moment as far as I'm concerned. Not only that, foraging food in a mangrove swamp almost daily to feed the family was another moment that I can never, ever forget. We used to try and catch king crab as well. King crab, snails and all. All those that we could find from the mangrove so Another woman was my mother used to ask me to go and sell nasi lemak. I used to tell, carry about 10 bunkers of nasi lemak from a basket, go to the riverside, sell it to the fishermen. And I want to send a bunkers, you know. So I'd carry back 10 cents per day. <laughs> yes, those are the moments that I can never forget, assisting my mother when I was young. I used to follow my brother to school during the Japanese time. And I used to sit on the floor beside him and seeing the daily ritual during Japanese time was quite memorable. Arriving there in the morning, face the sun, sing Japanese songs, raise up the Chinese Japanese flag and so on and so forth. I learned kanji at the age of six. 
this is Japanese kanji, you know. So I can never forget that. The Japanese almost took me away to Japan. Why? Because they did young boys to Japan, adopt them there, and then send them back to be their men looking for them. So I managed to escape. My uncle hit me somewhere. Your brother actually told them that you had died, yeah, right? Exactly. So it was the other one that I will forget. Okay. And weren't you around eight when your uncle in Kalantan adopted you? How did that happen? When I went to school, the first term, I did very well in school. I taught the class. So my mother wanted to give me a better education. So she asked my uncle to take me to more to go to the English school in more. So my uncle from more took me to more. Another uncle of mine, a policeman in Glantan, came back and saw this. Took me from this uncle to Glantan. That's how I landed in Glantan. You can imagine, you go to Glantan, you don't understand Glantanese language. Totally different slang, different lingo altogether. <laughs> and so, even the food was different, right? That you talked about this thing called budu, which you liked, and then you found out. No, no, no. no. Oh, that, let's not talk about budu. <laughs> this is a Klantan favorite sauce, you know. I don't like it. I don't like even the smell of budu. Okay, let's <laughs> not talk about budu. Let's not. You end up running away from your home in Kelantan to enroll in the boys' company. And your uncle didn't want you to do that. What was it? Why did you do that? Uh, when there were people from the military college capable asking for people who want to join the boys' way, boys' company at that time. I wanted to go. My uncle never allowed me because being a policeman, police and military were always at animosity. They are never in good terms. So my uncle will never ever accept me joining a military, no matter what. He said, I'm not going to join the military. That's the school there. One of my teachers, Muhammad, explained to him that he is going to learn there, study there, not going to join the armed forces. So that's how I managed to run away from Kelantan and join the boys' company at the age of 13, enrolled in Form 2 and enrolled in the college for the next six years there. What was it like there? I mean, you were so young and you spent so long at the boys' company. I like the discipline life. I like the teachers, particularly the t teachers were mostly English, British. Uh, there was only one Malay teacher, one Indian teacher, one Chinese teacher, Chinese teacher, Mr. Fong Ayong was my biology teacher. The rest were all English. They were very good teachers, actually. When we took up our examination, they called the Senior Cambridge. Sekarang SPM, you know, I did quite well as Senior Cambridge. So it was a really good British system. It was a high like being there. Didn't they teach you the military routine as well? Yes, use military training almost weekly. We prayed, shooting, then all, all part of military training is all inculcated into you. So it, it keeps you fit, you know, from morning until you go to bed, you sleep at 10 o'clock. <laughs> and you left the life? Were you doing that and thinking, I want to join the military? Well, it was partly, yes. Why not? I like it. I saw what the future is like. We read books about military and uh, I like the military life. Yes. Any more question? I read that you swam from Pulau Pangkolau to Pulau Pangkor. <laughs> oh my God. How? You remember all what I wrote in my book, huh? I did. I did. Tell me about it because I've been to uh, both sides. It's quite far. One day, uh, a friend of mine, the late 
Arif Awang he joined the force. He was an aeronautical engineer. We decided to swim across to Pulau Pangkor from Pulau Pangkor Laut, which is quite far actually, not realizing the current. So we started swimming at eight o'clock. After one hour swimming, Arif was drifted away. I couldn't see him anymore. So I kept on swimming for a good eight hours. Eight hours and I reached Pangkor Laut, Pulau Pangkor. So on arriving there, a group of fishermen really scolded me. They said, you stupid. All sorts of words being used because uh, this is a dangerous place. You see people being eaten by, by sharks. The Portuguese men of war, all those dangerous things. Why the hell did you swim? Oh my God. I didn't know about all this. So I swam, of course. It sounds it, like you don't regret doing it though. No. Uh, I like swimming. I swam. I also swam from Singapore to Johor. That was another freak of swimming. What was that like? Was it harder to swim from Singapore to Johor? A while in Singapore was a challenge, actually. One day we had a session on a British aircraft carrier, HMS Bulwark, actually, at a Japanese slipway. So the British Marine challenged us if we could swim across the strait. Okay, we took the challenge. So in uniform, we jumped down from the deck, 30 to 40 feet down, we swam. The British Marine jumped down, but they didn't swim. We swam right across. Two hours about four hours to reach the home in uniform. So we did it. So we proved to them that we could do better than we can do. Before this, they said the Malaysian can never become a commando. So we really proved to them that we can do better. That surprised them, actually. So after you did that, they never said it again. No. <laughs> no. Like you have a question, you might question. So I want to go back to boys' company, right? I read that you almost studied medicine, but then you ended up joining the cadet wing instead. How did that happen? Oh my God. During the final interview, part of governor's interviews, um, Tansi Kadi was the chairman. He said, you for the scholarship to go and take up medicine in Glasgow, Scotland. I cannot accept the offer. I can't, is it? Because I've got no parents left to go and study overseas. You still need parental care, maybe you need 10 ringgit a month or 15 ringgit a month to buy toothbrush. Nobody is there around to support me. So then you get out from the hall, make up your mind. <laughs> I've had out, the director of studies was Mr. Walworth at that time. Came up from the rear door, came to me say, you boy, look, I took the trouble to recommend you. You bloody are going back there and say, yes, you understand? I say, yes, sir. <laughs> I went back in again and said, well, have you made up your mind? He said, yes. Oh, no, sir, I cannot accept the offer. Oh, my God. Okay, you join the army. We send you to Senators. After two years, we send you to university to take up engineering. So I'm not going to go to the engineer course, sir. Why not? The highest rank in the course only a colonel, sir. Oh, you want to be a general? No, sir. <laughs> I, I, I know, sir, it's not that, not, that's the point. I don't want to be an engineer course, I want to be a combatant, you know, send you to the infantry, go to cadet wing. That's how I ended cadet wing. Next two years, I became officer. That's how I joined the army. It sounds like even when you were young, you knew exactly what you wanted and you weren't afraid to tell people, right? Even when, oh, your superior said, no, you're crazy. No, no. Nobody advised me what to do for life whether to go into the army or engineer, whatever it is. Nobody had ever mentioned about a future. So this is all preordained in life because accidental like that I joined the military. I liked it. I like being in uniform. 
So it is accidental, but I like it. What was it like? So you joined the Royal Malay Regiment for RMR in 1959, and you said it transformed you into a professional soldier. What was it like? Oh, Forum Malay was a good cup talent, actually. It is highly disciplined. You're taught from A to Z to be a good officer. Very highly disciplined. You need, that's how you learn to become a very highly disciplined officer. And the officer's study period is a weekly affair. They make you read and read and read and read books, military history and so on and so forth. That's how they make an officer out of you. They make you an officer who is knowledgeable. That's how they build you up. This is for Rebelli, how good it was. The system is what we learned from the British legacy, you know. You said you read a lot. Were there certain things you don't mind sharing that you learned that really changed the way that you thought of military life and being a good officer? I can tell you I've read almost all military history books. All the campaigns from the SLA, the Gali, Gali campaigns, the latest war in Iraq, Falkland War, and so on and so forth. I read all those books. So I know what was good, what was bad. I learned history, I learned strategies. To me, reading is good. I don't read. Okay, another question. You said you read a lot of strategy. I just wanted to drill down because I find it so interesting. Was there a particular military strategist that you really admired and why? Oh my God, the Falkland. The strategy was the question of where the British ended up and a small ship versus big ships. How the British did it, the gathering of intelligence by the special forces, by the ICS and by the commanders prior to sending the infantry, the Gurkha battalions to the Falkland. They went right into the heart of Argentina. And then they use a torpedo to hit big ship. The torpedo has to hit the Argentina vessel called General Belgrano, drowned in 350 men and down with it. One small torpedo. And from there, the British learned that it's better to have smaller ship to fight against big ship. This is a strategy they learned from the Falkland War. Over here, people may have big ship, but what we need is a smaller ship, torpedo ship. Very fast torpedo ship. They can go at 30, 40, 50 knots with torpedoes. I think this strategy should be adopted by our country. Instead of people buy a big ship, you also must buy a big ship. Let them have big ship. We have smaller ship, but hard eating ship. This is the best strategy that I've learned from the military history that I've read. Now, there are many others on land battle, different into victory by Sir William Slee. Because the Japanese, the bomber would do this, also of that. Another good strategy, how they did against the Japanese during the Japanese war too, when we learn about the biggest naval battle ever fought in the Lithi Gulf in Philippines. Another good strategy employed by the Allied forces, U.S. Army. But I'm not going to follow the strategy of bombing Hiroshima and Nagasaki. For them, that may be a good strategy, but killing millions of innocent people. <laughs> Is something that should look into at all. Okay. To them, two bombs and the bloody war. One Nagasaki, one Hiroshima. So what? Is it a good strategy? To them, it's a good strategy. To me, it's a killing strategy. Do you ever find yourself struggling with the idea of killing another person? Because that was what you were trained and paid to do, right? Killing another person? Yeah. Was that something you ever struggled with? Killing another person? 
your enemy is a matter of life and death. Your profession is to eliminate your enemy. How you do it is so a different matter. If you have someone who wants to kill you, what do you do? Yeah, you definitely fight back. Yes, you fight back. That's what killing is all about. Okay? Were you ever afraid? Because I read that you were never afraid of death. And I wonder, was that from the start or did you learn to not like that? I, to me, life and death is all in God's hand. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's only God will determine when you die, how you die. So what is there to be afraid of? I was once asked by somebody, are you afraid of death? I said, sir, you shouldn't be afraid of death too, because your life's all there. It's written when you will die, how you will die. You would know how, but you will die one day. So what is it to be afraid of? I've jumped the skies, the night skies, the day skies, all over. I should have died. I could have died when one day my parachute didn't open. I landed in Buffalo hole somewhere in the paddy field. It was like five feet deep, right? And then you went straight yeah, again. I should have died. Well, God said, you're not fated to die on that day. No, I am still alive. Do you feel like a strategy to overcome fear based on that story? Because I read you fell into that buffalo lake and yeah. then you went straight up again and then you still had an issue and you almost got electrocuted. Yes, just to kill your fear. You do it again. We made a mistake. We jumped and back parachute in the paddy field is then that in the park properly back. So you jump again and again. So I said, just to kill the fear, I packed the street properly this time. Yep. Hi, okay, no problem. So that's killed my fear. <laughs> I read that a philosophy while you were going back at 4RMM is that be cruel in order to be kind. What does that actually mean? How do you apply that? <laughs> this, this is a motto that I used to know was an instructor in the cadet way, actually. I told the cadets that I'm going to be cruel to you. In order to be kind, kind to the government, kind to the army, giving a good army officer, good leader. If I were to commission poor fellow, poor leader, I'm not kind, not being kind to the government. Guess what I mean? So I told every one of them, look, I'm going to be cruel to you in order to be kind. Cruel to you in the sense I'm going to train you, I'm going to mold you, I'm going to make a good officer out of you so that pass over good officer. You said good officer quite a few times. How do you define a good officer? What makes a good officer? Is he knowledgeable? If he's not knowledgeable, if he cannot take whatever is being taught to him, he's not a really good officer. And uh, dependable or not. Is he trustworthy or not? So this is what we look at. People who are very slow learner what to do. They cannot take up instruction properly. To be a good officer, you've got to be mentally and physically fit. Some are mentally fit, but physically not fit. Some are physically fit, mentally not fit. These are the things that we look into an officer. You said they need to be able to learn and be educated, right? How do you find that line between learning and following orders, but also knowing when to push back? Because your seniors probably aren't always right. When I was teaching, I did the weekly test for instance, to pass you the test, whether they've learned what I've taught them last week, see whether they pick up or not. From there, can judge. And then I tell them in the field whether they can do it, whether they can command. If a man cannot command a section in the field, he's not fit to be commissioned as an officer. If he can command a section in a platoon, then he can be commissioned. But once commissioned, he's going to command a platoon when he goes to the unit. So if he cannot command at that level, sorry, no way. Okay? 
And in the 1960s, you were deployed to Congo as part of the first Malayan Special Forces. What was it like? Anything that stood out for you? It sounds like there was a lot of memorable incidences there. <laughs> it's the Congo. Oh my God, what do I say in the Congo first? When we arrived at the Congo, we were put into a camp called Ozon Camp. Our duty of self for the past 30 days really, they don't change duty of self. Our duty of self is cheap for 28 days. And then they don't change duty of self. I continued to do the officer until we reached Congo. And then we went to a camp called Uzon Camp. The other officers were all busy. I was the only duty officer with the men. I come to escape with the armored vehicles to the door, telling us to get out of the camp. I said, no, I had only my pistol and they had big guns. I stood my ground, shouted, telling us to get out. I told the men to get ready, bring out a weapon called bazooka. We got no plural at the moment, you know, I didn't drive yet. <laughs> so just aim at them. So I told the Congress, if you shoot at me, they shoot at you. So they bolted away. It saved Ozone camp from being taken back by the Congress. That is the first day of my arrival in the Congo. And I was asked to look after the man elected to be the prime minister, but was never been a prime minister because he was put in prison. After a few weeks, they were to take him into the boat upstream. So I escort him to the boat upstream. To my horror, the found out he was slaughtered. Two days later, he was cut to pieces by these people. So British Lumumba made his fate. There were many incidents in the Congo that I can never forget. You can read from my book. <laughs> How I saved the Belgium from the prison. They were looking for two Belgian from the mines missing clubs. So I discovered they were kept in prison inside the camp. I told the people, these people were there. No way you can take them. So apart from stealing them. <laughs> Plan, crime, the three into the roof, opened the roof, lowered the roof, took them out. That's it. Cover back. The next day I went back to the camp and then they were shouting here and there. Two prisoners gone. Door was locked, but how they got out, they don't know. I was just saying, I was surprised. Sure, I was a liaison officer. I could speak both languages, Swahili and French. Till then, oh my God, something's wrong somewhere. I don't know. Some people will take a task after that, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> the guard commander was taken to task. Oh my God, I saved another officer, a civil a Reiki regiment that came down the visit. They went to Kindu and he was caught by the English. Normally, before that, they were the caught Italian pilot and cruiser, you know, and cut them to pieces at the market. And this officer was about to be done too. I was quickly told where there is safe this officer, Colonel Nixon, wasn't there? If I didn't save him, he would have been really slaughtered. Eaten, perhaps. Eaten. Officer never given order. A corporal has a say, sergeant has a say, everybody has a say. That's it. After Congo, you came back to Malaysia and there was this thing called the confrontation or undeclared war. And I wonder for people who don't know what that is, what, what was it, Ali? When we get independence in 57, there was a move to get Sarawak and Sarawak to Yunus and then Malaysia to Malaysia. Our friend down south didn't like it. They didn't plan Indonesia Raya since 1945 to unify Malaysia, including Malaya, Borneo, into big Indonesia. 
issues back with Sukarno plane. So Sukarno had a talk with President Philippines. He disagreed that we formed. So we sent back spanning mission into Sabah and Sarawak and asked the people whether they like to join Malaysia. Yes, they like. So we see the wishes of the people of Sukarno doesn't like it. So he started giving us trouble. The first trouble was uh, the harassment of our police station in Tabadu in 2nd April 1963. There were like 30 Indonesian raiders, right? Yes, yes. And they went into the 2nd Division, the 3rd Division, and even in West Malaysia. So a lot of landing all over the places. So this war was undeclared. You know why undeclared? If war is declared, then the world will take that. It is a war between two nations. Others will not come to support. Just like us, for instance, we buy, let's say, some weapon system from Italy. Come war, Italy will not supply because they remain neutral. That's why they don't declare so that they can continue to buy weapon system from all over the places. That's why the war is undeclared. So we fought the undeclared war from 1963 to 1966. And wasn't this the reason why the Malaysian Special Service Unit started? Oh, because the uh, confrontation was getting bigger and bigger. The British, the Marine commanders and the British SCS was overstretched. They can really take all this burden by themselves. So they came up with a suggestion that we should also form commando to assist. This idea came way back in December 1965. So Late Tun Razak accepted it. We got orders in January 1965 to form the commander. We called for volunteers. Some 1,500 volunteers for service in the commando, including your good self. It's not easy to get in, right? 350 out of 1,500. Yes, 350 out of 1,500 was selected to undergo the commando course run by the British in Johor. Best by best, 50 at a time went there. I could not go during the first one because I was still instructing cadet at the college. So the commander said, you can only go after the passing out of this intake six of the short service. So I only went after the intake six was passed out and I went there to join the commander. So we formed up the commando in 1965. So we assisted the British and we finally took over all the role, all the job when they left. Okay. There was the aim that name want to pass over the job to us because they can't go back. Why should they be bothered about you anymore? Therefore, take care of yourself. Okay, lucky. What makes a commando? Like, what are the main characteristics of a commando? <laughs> oh my God, first, you must have an aim in mind. What's your aim in mind? My aim was to be the best fighter. So you learn other techniques and tactics of fighting from the infantry, the commando training. Which is quite different. So if you want to be good, you learn more. So I wanted to learn more. Secondly, you got to be physically fit and mentally fit. That's why only 10 to 15% pass every commando course. Out of 50, only 10% pass. But these are the best, the physically and mentally fit. I wonder why was it that, you know, these people would want to become a commander because it took so much effort and it was really hard. So what was the motivation? The driver. Oh, people admire you. If you're beautiful, people admire you. Betul or not? Huh? If you're strong, people admire you. Another one is, you want to do a job. A job is to go for the enemy. And to be the enemy, you got to be a better enemy. You got to better train. 
That's why we want to join the commando. What was your toughest operation that you've been on? Oh my God. Every operation is a tough operation for me. Otherwise, we will not get involved. Toughest one, perhaps, was when one day I was called by the Defense Minister, Nitun Razak. He wants to know where is Chimpek, the head of the communist. So I went out there and told the army chief what the minister wants. He too was surprised. How the so what I'll do is I'll go into Para area, spread out from Clinton border to Kedah border. We swept the jungle. We took one month ration to last three months in the jungle. Whatever we found, we ate. If you were to ask me, what have I not eaten? Only men have not eaten. <laughs> so to survive, you got to eat. You got to eat steak. You got to eat monkeys, everything. Such that border area, we heard what was across the border. They were having conference using Honda generator. You can hear from our border area. So there was a one very tough operation. I'm not going to go beyond that. And so that wasn't even in Malaysia, right? Yes. Right, in Malaysia. That is, you know, the tough operation was the enemy landed in Strudong Laut. You know where Strudong Laut is? It's in Sabah, right? In Sabah area. Where you call in, I landed the Tawau. They were told, couldn't find the enemy, give them hell. 300 of them. The way we went in down, my helicopter jumped to the swarm area there. After two hours, we found that track, landed. We followed that track all, all the way to the river. And there were only 33 of you, right? But 300 enemy. It was very tough. And the second highest mountain in Sabah, Gunung Talipat. The higher you go, the more bloody leeches followed you. Oh my God. The way to survive is salt. You just rub your body with salt. It don't come to you. Otherwise, oh my God. Despite all those, you'll find one leash here in the morning, one stair in the shirt as big as your toe, you know. You haven't sucked your blood. And then to welcome you there are crocodiles. Crocodiles all over the river in Kalbakan So the enemy could not cross the river because there is no way of crossing the river to hit our ranger company in Kalbakan. So they went back to Kalimantan Barat. So we come back to cross there. I found a Kalabit village. So they got this boat who can take one man each time across the river. So we used the boat 33 times managed to cross the river. Give them whatever you have. They were very happy to get some big robbers. That was a very, very tough operation. Walking, walking over almost three months. You can imagine walking from day to day, morning to evening, morning to evening for three months in the jungle. I know whether you can do it or not. <laughs> it is, I can say it's bloody tough. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Again. You mentioned the person that was shot in the head. Was that the third son? Because I read that there was father whose first and second son and also the third son served under you. And they unfortunately, you know, passed away under service. How do you deal with loss? Because that's quite frequent, right? That's part of the job. How do you do, deal with that? Until today, I will never ever forget it was one commando, he died in the commando. So when we sent him for burial in Batubah, the father whispered to me, he said, I've got another son who wants to join the commando. I said, no, please, you have one who did pass away in the commando, please don't send another one. He sent one, that man also died in operation. So I was sent for burial in Batubah, and the father whispered to me, I've got another son, I said, please, you got two already that passed away in my head. Oh my God, I said, please don't. I let the son join the commando. 
It was a, a village when I was ambushed in Sarawak. We sent a troop to do the follow-up. He too was shot in the head. Third son came back, buried. This time I asked the father, have you got another son? No, I've got no more son. Only daughters. I don't accept daughters. Three brothers died in the combat. How can you forget? These are the men that we trained so hard, but they're fated to die in battle. How do you cope with such loss? I think it's saying that this is all part of life. You would accept, would accept it. It was the father's wishes that all the sons must die in the commando. I can help for that. Father, I can help forget that father's name. Okay, any more questions? You should have a touching question to ask. I wanted to jump to your time as a defense attaché in South Vietnam. This was in 1974-75. So you were there during the Vietnam War. Tell us what it was like. I was born after my special forces of the Scots in Fort Bragg in North Carolina. We were born the whole night there. Not when I was in Atashino. We were born the whole fleet load of the 28 aircraft destroyed in the airport. One whole night, the Viet Cong hit the airport with mortar fire. That was in 1975 as a she. What was it like when you were there as an attaché? Well, Vietnam was at war. The third offensive began when I arrived. They briefed me, they say, this is normal early accordance. They keep you here and there. People were missing and so on and so forth. So I didn't quite believe it. Being army trade, had a lot of friends in Vietnam because we met in Fort Bragg together, they were attending a lot of courses. I know them. I even know the commander of the 1st Airborne Division, who was there in Fort Bragg. I met all these people. They previously said, Borhan, is it going to be a very bad year? You better be prepared for it. So there was one thing I found out. And people were deserting by the hundreds. I questioned some of these people who deserted. Why deserted? It's a search. In Vietnam, corruption is so rampant that you can afford to pay them in gold. You serve in the rear, you can't, you serve in front. We day can hear two or three hundred people missing in action, missing in action, missing in action. It happened every year. I got words from all these people. And then people from other embassies were sending their family away on holiday, but they never returned. It was thinning out, thinning out, thinning out. So I told our people, we should also start thinning out and send our family home. Oh, they don't listen to me. One day, I told my family, look, I'm going to send you home tomorrow. So I told the staff there. Some of them also joined the bandwagon. I met them at the airport, and they were sending the family home. Oh, they were attacking even the Douglas Palace. We stayed very close to Douglas Palace. My children, the two children, saw the aircraft bombing the black in the hand, thinking there was uh, just uh, another firework or something like that. <laughs> oh, my God. It was the day uh, I was a friend of mine came with a bag full of gold. Hey, Bolan, please take my two children away with you. I said, look, I'm not sure of getting out myself out there. When are you going to see some people from the American embassy or something like that? So he went away. He actually offered me 30 bucks gold. Can you imagine take the two children away with it? That was a really bad situation. I was able to have an assessment of what was happening. Then I come to the conclusion. We got to leave. My group, my group, I'm sending my family home. Just five of us left, the rest all went home. 
were running from place to place, hiding from place to place. Until the day we tried to contact our people, all the British who said they would help us out together with the aircraft. They left without telling us. When I went to the embassy, I saw only the Gurkhas there. They sent the Gurkhas from Hong Kong to look after the embassy. The rest all left. I went to see the airborne division. They were in control of Saigon to go to the airport to get contact our aircraft. Managed to contact from our aircraft, from our people from Jakarta. They can't contact direct. Aircraft going to Saigon was shot down. My God, I pray please to shoot down our aircraft. I gave the last few dollars to the air controller there. Here's the money that I have. Please, this is the code word. So the code word, so the aircraft came, we landed. Person who gave me 10,000 US dollars to buy petrol, I said, no more petrol here. Oh my God. So we waited after we stopped aircraft, landed, burned the airway. We managed to clear, then we managed to go up. We went, I said, you just fly low, don't fly high. The high got shot by missile, enemy got seven, seven missiles, you can shoot aircraft. You fly very low, low all the way until you reach the sea. You reach the sea, flew all the way back halfway. That you got petrol, that you got minyak, have fuel problem. Red sign, you know, oh my, prepare for water landing. <laughs> all kind of problem. Some out of the God is kind. We managed to reach Kotabaru. Just enough petrol to reach. That's how we save ourselves. You heard a lot of stories coming out right after you left. You were asking your friends what happened. You had yeah. this friend you used to know who stood his ground against a tank and used a bazooka against them. The, the tank. Oh, oh. This is um, when I left. A lot of the miss read by boat landed in island Pulau Bidong and Pulau Pulau in, in Terengganu there. So I could have paid to go there and meet some of them. I met two officers who escaped. Now how the airborne commander, you know, died. He said he was the man manning the road. He was having a bazooka, the edgy tank weapon. The tank came after him, he shot the tank. The tank rolled over him, he died. There was a, the airborne commander himself. The North Vietnamese, can you imagine that? Your enemy what you with a building medal. He's a good friend of mine, Colonel Trong in, in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. We played golf together. He paid the Vietnamese uh, airborne wing on me, jumping together in Vietnam, where he passed away. That's the way he wanted to die, but he died. He died as an officer. So you were a Green Beret for 15 years of service life, and then you hung up. Was it hard for you to give up being Green Beret? No, it's not hard because um, I was sent to attend National Defense course in India. After I came back, I was made the defense planning officer. And after a year of, on the job, I was promoted to Major General. There's no post in the commando. If there is a post in commando, I would love to go back to the commandos. When I'm leaving a unit that you raise from a piece of paper to the special service group, you're losing a family. I've lost a family, but I treat them as my relative. We are still friends. They treat me just like their father. They call me Baba Agumando. <laughs> so yeah, I miss them. Every time I go in there, I saw what I left. I saw my old house where I used to stay in the mess. Where I used to run off the study period on a weekly basis. You live in a house, just like you. 
and you get old, you leave your parent, leave your mother and father, but you still love them, okay? What do you miss the most? I miss joining them with various sports, like a pre-fall competition. I miss the most. I miss the most is fishing trip with them. We used to take a boat and go out, spend the night fishing. <laughs> I came back with a lot of fish. All those people used to come, okay, take the fish. We only have taken our shell about five or six fish. Each to go, young lad, you can take. We caught a lot of fish. That's what I wish, sharing life with the families there. You know, every family in the commando used to visit them, knowing them, their family, just like my own family. And I was commanding officer, you know, every wife of the men, you know, every one of them, where they come from, how many children they have, this is what I mean, just like my own family, okay? To your family's credit, it's not an easy life for them as well. When you move, they also move, right? And it's a very yeah. simple life. Yes, very simple life. That's how we live. Well, Anyway, uh, I don't know how they are today, but uh, they are quite different to the uh, different people, different special guys, different style. My leadership style is quite different. How would you describe your leadership style? My style is very simple. Ask yourself, why you love your mother most? Because she take care of you from the day you were born, brought you up. If you want your men to love you, you take care of them. So that's where I took care of the men. I looked after their welfare, provide them with a good living in the world, good work condition. I give them the best of training, make them a real good man, good soldier. And of course, lead them well by example. What do you think differentiates a good leader from a great leader? <laughs> a great leader must be a good leader, okay? <laughs> we are no good. You cannot be a great leader, okay? <laughs> Without that, uh, you got to be good. You're going to be good to be a great leader. Yeah. You cannot be a great leader if you're bad. Was there any person you met that was the greatest leader that you've ever met? And why was he so great to you? The great leader that I've ever met. The one man that I can never forget, my mentor is the late Ghazali Chapman, the PGB holder, the fighter, the brave man, honest man, man who stopped me from living. The armed forces. If I had left the armed forces, I would be a fisherman. I wanted to be a fisherman because I was sick and tired of certain characters. I got kicked here and there. So I said, it's time that I say goodbye. Not until I met this bloody man. Yeah, you will not leave. Brought me to his office. He has one bungo and a silma. You take half, I take half. Imagine you, he's a three-star man, you know. I was like, you know, I admire him. There was the late General Tunku Osman, right? Who said, don't be afraid to say no when you want to write. Because one day at a meeting, he chased me out from the meeting by the uniform. They had tried out so many uniforms, A, B, C, D. I recommend D because D is good, strong. Only the cost per yard is for it. A is only 80 cents per yard. He chose A. 80 cents per year. I said, this will last only three days in the jungle. After you get torn to pieces, get out. That was kick out. One day before I retired, he was officiating the opening of the new camp that I built, Camp Batankara Head Production. Well, at that ceremony, he whispered to me, Burhan, he said, don't be afraid to say no when you are in the right. You remember? Yes, sir, I remember. So I stick to this advice, don't be afraid to say no. For sticking that advice, I suffered many repercussions. 
lot of unbelievable thing happen when you should be promoted. You are not promoted. You got kicked from A to B. You asked to do this and that. So I asked to do a lot of things, but I did very well. He asked to do small, some more, but he got kicked out until had a letter of resignation. Oh, the repercussion of sticking to the advice given by the Gosman. But saved by General Ghazali Chairman. Otherwise, I would have retired as a fisherman. He said, oh, very four-star, how you reform? So the advice, I would like to say, is a good advice. If only people listen to this, you would do a lot better than today. The whole trouble is some people that they're quite afraid to say no when they are right. This is a saying, you cannot beat the system, you join the system. That's what's happening today. You try to beat the system, you get the trouble. So the best thing is to join the system. That is what's happening today in this country. Were you never tempted to join the system? Because I read in your book and you said that this system had trained you to have honor, to have integrity, but then you were being punished for being honest and forthright. Were you never tempted to go, what's the point? I'm being punished for doing precisely what you want me to do. <laughs> well, I got to accept it. But I was happy to say that I stood my ground. You're right. What is wrong in telling your chief, sir? Please don't buy this because it's not compatible. When I was asked to buy something for the commanders, I said the equipment is not compatible for the commanders. They sent people to my office telling me, please buy this. I said, sorry, because they are no good. They asked me, what is your bank and bank account number? Upon hearing that, I called my adjutant, please show these two characters out of the game. I got kicked out after three days. Anyway. I did what had to be done. They bought what was not compatible, but only threw them into the river. They spent millions there joining the system. You cannot beat the system. <laughs> okay, Nagi. I want to talk a bit about the fact that on 3rd of March, 1993, you were the chief of army, and then you became the chief of defense force on 1st February, 1994. What do you consider to be your greatest achievements during that period? Oh my God. Well, during that short period of time, I managed to put a lot of things on papers. I also raised a lot of unit informations, blah, blah, during the period. I raised, for instance, the Army Management Institute covering training management, men management, logistic management, telling people on management in the Institute. I raised the, the um, for the rapid deployment force, the RDF. I raised the para brigade. I managed to change from the army command from the cohort the field command, commanding both East and West Malaysia field command. I managed to raise the army aviation unit. I also built the home for the commandos in Russia. Isn't that the home with oysters? Yes, but more my recognition born in areas full of oysters. I told the Sultan, late Sultan of Johor, that I found oysters in this area. He said, please don't tell people. Actually, oysters have got balls. So I didn't tell anybody until today. Sultan has passed away. I didn't tell the President Sultan. I only know it is somewhat, what, 80 feet deep as so all. High tide, 80 feet, low tide, 60 feet deep. There's the area. It is between two islands. <laughs> That's all I can tell you. So you will be diving 60 feet every day to get oysters to eat? I was diving for places to find 
the most suitable area to build the commando camp. So I dive all this area where we can use for training. So I happened to discover the oysters in this area. The building of the camp that I can never forget was um, we found the area. I told the Sultan, I say, you go and ask for the land. I went to see the state secretary. I don't ask him. I say, order by Sultan, this area of land is to be given the commando for camp. So are you sure the Sultan requested us? Yes, yes, you really Sultan. I didn't think he would dare really Sultan. So he got the land. He got the land, but we got no money to build the camp. How do we find money? I'm going to tell you how I found money. Only the present Dato Sri Anwar Ibrahim can tell you how I managed to get the money. <laughs> I managed to find 500 million for the armed forces, for the army, when I spent. 300 million for Cape Iskandar. Didn't you tell Anwar that the army loves you now? Don't wait for them to hate you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just the gist of it. I told them, look, <laughs> the army love you today, but don't wait until they hate you. <laughs> he must have been shocked. <laughs> yeah, threatened him, actually. <laughs> and it was actually a bit got martial with threatening you. The funny minister. <laughs> I mean, you were actually threatened with court martial when you were very young, right? By your superiors while speaking out. You were yeah. not afraid. That was when I received a letter saying that the commander was to be dismembered. I went to Mendel, asked him, Sir, why did you do this? We had an argument. Finally, was says that you being an Englishman. What if there was going to be another confrontation? You tell me, what do we do? You don't ask for people like me to volunteer again. He was very angry. You being insolent. I court marshal you, blah, blah, blah. Upon hearing this argument, the army chief next door heard bust open. What the hell is happening? The police officer good to court marshal him. The army chief come to my office. We had another explanation, another argument over there. Okay, 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 sir. Don't argue with the chili officer next time. Go back. So I went back. I waited for a court martial. There was no court martial until I retired. <laughs> but the letter to this band, the commander was stricted back, cancelled. Otherwise, in 1967, the commander would be dismissed. There's no SSG to the see. If not for this bloody man. <laughs> and what do you think now that you've retired? What do you think of the armed forces today? And is it moving in the direction that you have wanted when you were chief of defense. When I was serving, I always think that this is my job to have an armed forces, the army, which is the state of readiness to defend the country. The definition of state of readiness is a manpower and a state of manpower. Manpower meaning not just the armed forces, the army, how well trained are they, how is their morale, you're ready to go to war, ready to defend the country. Is the population motivated to defend the country? Answer that question. Not too much. There you are. they trained to defend the country. They're not trained to defend the country. Unlike other countries, they have national service. Everybody served in their forces for a couple of years. And they do annual training. They're trained. They're motivated. But we are not. Plus, in the state of equipment. What is the state of equipment today? You can see for yourself. It's worse me. Plus, sustainable. How long can you sustain conflict? When you have no defense industry in the country, everything is important. So this is what worries me. When I was serving, this is the thing that I tried to do until today. 
things have not changed. Is the armed forces today in a state of readiness to defend the country? To ask yourself. Every citizen can ask the, those three things that I give the definition of what is state of readiness. Manpower, statement, government statement, plus sustenance. How long can you sustain? Another thing that worries me is uh, talking about training in the armed forces, in particular the army. You spend 70% of your time to train because your job is that. Unless you train for war. When come war, you're not ready for it. Ask yourself, have you spent 70% of your time in peace time to train for war? I used to ask young officers, whenever I meet them, what sort of officer study do you have this one? They can't answer me. As an officer, how many books have you read to educate yourself? To be knowledgeable, you got to read, read, read. You're lazy to read, only looking at computer, looking at this, looking at that. You can forget about being a good officer. You got a message or not? Yes. <laughs> what is the most underrated skill as a great leader? Well, to be a great leader, one who is um, concerned about well-being of your man, this is an underrated. As for me, until today, I still look at those under my command. I used to visit the family. I wrote a book, trying to sell the book and make some money. This is meant for the sick and lame comrades. There are a lot of sick and lame comrades. There are not very many left. Not very many leave 80. People ask me, how old are you? I say, I'm 38 years old. These people serve me. It is through them that I became what I was. And what I have whenever I received the book that I wrote. Spend for myself, but for the sick and lame government. Do you feel like because you lost your parents so young, like when you were age one, your dad, and at age nine, like your mom, do you feel that that shaped your character? Because you sound so independent even when you were so young. Yeah, I was very independent. I was so independent even from the age of nine. I assisted my auntie in Clinton washing plates. After dinner, after lunch, I washed plates. I cleaned the house, swept the house from the age of nine. So when I joined the military college, this is nothing to me. I'm so independent right from young age. So unlike today, I see my granddaughter, for instance, at the age of nine, still mother feed her. What the hell is going on? Spawning the jungle. <laughs> I washed my own sock. I washed my own shoes when I was nine. I didn't know about father. I didn't even know what he looks like. There was no photograph taken. What is your greatest regret? I did not succeed in implementing the plan for the armed forces. When I left, I planned to form up the command structure and Northern Command, Central Command, Southern Command, Eastern Command. So each command is given another rank higher. At least another Five people being promoted to Lieutenant General that I miss because I left. Although I asked to extend my service for two years as a storage, extension of service is not that good because people behind you hoping to get promoted, don't get promoted. I lost 11 years of my seniority because people ahead of me extended two years, two years, two years, one year, and so on and so forth. So when I reach the time to be promoted, I got only one year left. So I want to extend. So and so behind me cannot be promoted. So because of that, I could not form this common structure. That's the only regretted. I could not fulfill one area of my plan. The rest all done. Okay. For any young person who's listening to this interview and they want to be a commando, do you have any advice for them? 
my advice to give Mano is that first, what is your aim in life? If you aim in life to make yourself better trained soldier, then join the commando. Otherwise, stay where you are. Don't join the commando. Mano will teach you extra. See what I mean or not? Physically and mentally. So we have got extra knowledge. Tell you, you have got maybe master's degree. The commando got PhD in battle. Okay? We are always better trained than the enemy today. So if you want to be a commando, that's the way to look at it. Firstly, and secondly, is should be proud to be a member of the elite unit. People who join F1 Brigade, for instance. People look at you as F1 Brigade, elite unit. Commando is another elite unit. If you want to be a commando, you want to learn more and join the commando, okay? If you are satisfied with what you are, don't join. You're afraid to die young, don't join. You're afraid to jump from aircraft, don't join, okay? Okay. Tansui, <laughs> thank you so much for your time. I want to end with four questions. The first one is this. Do you feel like having lived such an illustrious life that you have found your why or your purpose in life? <laughs> Oh my God, the why in life? I don't think I can answer this question. Maybe after dinner, or maybe during dinner, I can answer the question why. <laughs> no worries. The only answer I can say is a why because it's just, you just want to be a better man. And what kind of legacy would you like to have left behind? <laughs> what legacy? Enjoying being a member of the elite group, commandos, is the legacy that I think I left behind. I think the young officers looking at the legacy that I've left behind. Okay, be a better man, be a better soldier. And better like, educated. Of course, not only that, you got to be educated and self-educated. Otherwise, don't be an officer without knowledge. Forget about being an officer. Only with knowledge, you can give your men the kind of training you want. No knowledge, forget is the legacy I'm living behind. Would you say that those are the most important qualities of a successful person or successful commando? The most important quality of a successful person first is a great leader. What a great leader? Good man. Integrity. People don't doubt in you. Integrity is something that is still lacking. People that have doubt in you. You have doubt in the present government. If you have no doubt in the present government, then you are a great leader. And that was the end of episode 92. The show notes can be found at sodismawai.com forward slash 92. And stay tuned for next Sunday, because we will be meeting the founder of some pretty extraordinary startups, including one that became the most prominent business-focused social enterprise in North Korea, and was even used as the reason that Singapore should be the country used to host both Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un for the 2018 North Korea-United States-Singapore Summit. Also, He's now running a YC-backed crypto startup on DAOs alongside the Kazakhstan government. Pretty interesting, eh? To learn more, do subscribe to Steamy if you haven't done so already and see you next Sunday.